trying to take these things on and off and whatnot, and hung up at my new hairdo. It's all crazy. Well, it is the second Sunday of Advent. We are glad that you're here. Welcome back into our space. Uh, it's been a long time. I was telling Scott, actually, um, Looney, didn't we just totally forget that? Yeah. This is what we were talking about. I swear, they should just, y'all should just let me go. Just turn me loose. So, I mean, what's the, what are we doing here, right? I don't know what's happening. So, here's the deal. We, we always light our, ad- we're going to do it, Scott, so get ready. We light our Advent wreath directly following announcements before we start worship. Although, today, we're going to wait and do it until right now when I remembered. And so, um, each Sunday of Advent, we have this Advent wreath. It's been a kind of a, a part of our tradition story. And we do a reading and we light candles. And it's a reminder of the sort of the incredible peace and love that Christ gives us during the season. We invite a family each Sunday to come up and do that. We missed last Sunday because we were uh, via video and we were on a pause, and then we almost missed this, sun, this Sunday because I'm an f- idiot. And so uh, that's two great truths right there. But I remembered, and that's all that matters now. And so I've invited the Looney, Looney family to come up and do our Advent reading uh, this week and light our candle. This Advent wreath reminds us of God's extravagant love, and each week during the Advent season, we light a new candle as we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ and live in anticipation of his return. Since last Sunday was the first Sunday of Advent, we did not meet. Today, we will be doing two readings and lighting two candles. This morning, we light the first candle of our wreath, which symbolizes expectation and hope. As we light this candle, we are reminded of the longing that filled the heart of God's people as they eagerly anticipated the coming of the Anointed One, the Messiah. And likewise, the expectation and hope we celebrate the birth of Christ and eagerly await for, wait his return. So the scripture is Psalm 103, verses 8 through 12. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. In Isaiah 9, 6-7, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The second candle we light this morning is the symbol of love. 
In some traditions, it's also known as the Bethlehem candle. This candle reminds us of God's radical incarnation love demonstrated by the birth of Jesus in the town of Bethlehem. So this is Luke 2, verses 4 through 7. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in the Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house of the Lion of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Let's pray. Lord, teach us to love. May he, we always remember to put you first as we follow Christ's footsteps, that we may know your love and show it in our lives. As we prepare for our celebration of Jesus' birth, also fill our hearts with love for the world, that we may all know your love and the one whom you have sent, your Son, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Loonies. I appreciate it. Bearing with me, that's a demerit for me, but we pulled it off, so it's pretty awesome. Uh, it is the second Sunday of Advent, and I try to remind us each year that um, if you haven't been a part of a tradition that's talked a lot about Advent, it's an important couple, a couple of important things to remember. One, Advent is a season. It's a season that leads us up to Christmas, which of course is the birth and the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ. But the word Advent actually is a Latin word that comes from the word Adventus, which means coming or arrival. And in Christian tradition, there actually are two Advents. There's not just one. We don't just look towards the birth of Jesus uh, as the only coming and the inbreaking of God into the world, but we look to a second Advent in which Christ will return. And so as we celebrate the season, really what we're doing is we're looking back and we're looking forward. We're looking with both celebration celebration and anticipation as we celebrate not only the fact that God broke into humanity, but that he promises to come again. And so the season is this incredible bookended reminder that God loved us enough to send his son and then loves us enough to promise to return to set all things right. And that's what we celebrate. But the majority of the season is really focused around the idea of the birth of Christ and celebrating that first advent, which is really the idea of the incarnation. The incarnation is a fancy theological term for the inbreaking of Christ into the person, of Jesus into the person of humanity, right? So that God came into humanity through the form of a person in Jesus Christ, that the embodiment of God, the person of Jesus Christ, is the idea of the incarnation, that God made himself flesh and dwelt among us. And so the incarnation is this radical collision of heaven and earth. It's not a, a nice little thing where we sit around by a manger and we sing sweet songs and we hold hands and we carol. From a theological standpoint, the incarnation was this radical collision of heaven and earth. Uh, John captures it as light piercing the darkness. Perfect, holy, majestic God shatters into sinful creation to redeem it and die for it. And the story of Christian uh, history and redemptive history is sort of brought to fruition through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And the incarnation marks the beginning of that movement where God stepped into humanity. And it was a violent thing. And not in violent in terms of just pure like um, action, but violent in terms of theology, in terms of sin, in terms of perfection that are coming in to this clash and this collision. And so the incarnation is not something that we ease into, but it's something that God did as he broke into humanity. And so as we celebrate the season, it's not always about 
things that are nice and sweet, but it's the fact that the God was so in love with you that he came to rescue you and that his love is so powerful in pursuing that it would break down all the barriers and walls in his attempt to relentlessly pursue you and pursue me. And that's what we begin to celebrate when we really talk about Advent, the coming of Christ and the promise of Christ's return. So we've been looking at it through the lens of celebration. Brandon began this process via video talking about celebrating Jesus as or the Savior as light. And we're talking this, this morning about celebrating the love of the Savior. And I thought long and hard about how I wanted to kind of approach it. Because a lot of different ways to approach the love of Christ, the love of God, the sort of perfect love that we've been shown and given that Jesus is the representation and the embodiment of. But there's a great parable that I want to explore that I think captures it best. But before we get there, I want to preface it by saying this. I spent a large portion of my life believing a lie. Like really, truly believing a lie. Falling prey to it in something that was so powerful and so significant that it still affects me today and that I still find myself trapped by a lot. And it's not a lie that I was told by my family. It's not a lie that my, my parents tried to sell me. It's a, it's a lie that culture tells all of us, but it's one that I bought into. And the idea is simply this, right? The lie that sort of almost killed me in terms of my pursuit of things was simply this, that my identity was built and attached to the way that people love me. Now, before you kind of write that off and you're like, well, you know, I really don't struggle with that, think about how it plays out in our lives for just a moment. We're taught from a young age that how we perform or how we act or how we do things will elicit a certain response from people. So when I got good grades, my mom would tell me that she's really proud of me, right? I would get $5 for an A, or I would do this, and I would, I would be able to get something from that action. When I performed well athletically, my dad would tell me that he was really proud of me. When I acted morally like a good young man, I didn't make bad choices, I didn't do those things, then, then people would tell me that I was a good kid. And we've learned, all of us have learned, that if we do certain behaviors, right, we get this certain response back from people. If I act this way, then I can't earn or they will tell me that they love me. We've learned this in relationships. That if I do certain things, he will say he cares about me. If I do this, she will respond this way. And our souls are built for this kind of love or this at least feeling of interaction. And so because of that, we pursue it, and our identity is tied to it. The problem, of course, is that our identity is broken. It's shattered. We have a broken identity apart from Christ. As humanity, we are sinful and broken, and our identity is broken, and we spend a lifetime chasing things to try and fill our broken identity. I need my parents' affection or attention. I need my bosses or my coworkers, the people around me, to tell me that they value me, that they appreciate me, that I'm loved. We look for that in all these places. We look for it in our spouse, that they're supposed to fill our broken, shattered identity with how their affection gets poured out on me. I feel valued. I feel loved. I feel cared for. And we spend the majority of our life chasing these things. And our identity is so sharply tied to it that we'll pursue it at all costs. Now, a lot of us will sit here and tell you, no, I don't, really, I don't care what people think about me. The reality is it's just a lie. Of course you do. You want to say you don't, but really at the core of who you are, we want to be loved. We want people to care about us. Think about those the most important relationships in your life. You really don't care what your parents think, what your kids think, what your wife thinks, what your coworker, what your boss thinks. You just don't care. The reality is that you do, and I do too. And when we pursue those things, that type of love to try and fill our broken, shattered identity, right, right? 
we will always wind up empty. And you want to know why? Because their love is imperfect. Their love is not perfect. It's not meant to heal your broken identity. So no matter how many times my dad would tell me that he was proud of me or my mom would tell me this or my wife tells me this or my people around me in the church tell me this, none of that really fixes my broken soul. And so I just keep pursuing it. And it transfers over how we think about God. We try and perform for him. We want his affection and love like we do other people. And so we think, if I just do this, then God will be okay. Or if I just do this, he will forgive me. Or if I do this, this bad thing won't happen. And we pursue this sort of affection from God the same way that we do from people, which is if I do, God will. And it's a lie. But the reality is, is that there is such thing as perfect love. And the Bible lays it out in an amazing way, and I want you to see it. Because the imperfect love from people will never fill your shattered identity. But there's a perfect love from God that you can never earn and you can never perform for. But it is free for you. And I want us to look at it in Luke chapter 15 this morning. We won't spend a ton of time, but I just want you to understand it. So that when we talk about celebrating the love of the Savior, we really understand what it is that we are Celebrating. So if you've got a Bible, I want you to open up to Luke chapter 15. It's a very familiar parable. Um, just the first few verses we're going to look at this morning. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're just going to ask God to teach our hearts. Lord, I do thank you for the opportunity to gather in this place. I thank you for being bigger than all the things that we forget or don't do correctly, and that this is not a ironed-out performance for you. It's just people, broken, shattered people that want to come together and worship the Lord, the God, the King of Kings. And so, Lord, I thank you for families like the Loonies who will come up and read. And I thank you for folks, God, that will give their time to lead worship or pour coffee or just clean the building. I thank you, Father, that the desire here of this community is just that people know you. And so, Lord, as we celebrate the idea of the love of the Savior this morning, what I, I pray is that you would show us what that love looks like. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask the Lord to teach you this morning. It doesn't have to be anything groundbreaking or new or life-altering. Just that God would teach you. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you. We do this every week. Um, we don't want to be a church in the habit of thinking about ourselves. We want to be in the habit of praying for other people and thinking about those around us, even if we don't know their name, everything that unfolds here on Sunday morning is not about you. Pray for your husband or the person behind you that you don't know, or just pray that God would move in their hearts this morning. Lord, we turn our time over to you. Uh, we ask you to be glorified and exalted. And we ask this in the risen name and the, and the perfect love that you give us through Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. So Luke 15, very familiar parable. There's actually a series of parables that are very familiar that are expressions of God's love. And we're going to look at the first one uh, as we look at this idea of the perfect love of Christ. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then Jesus told him this parable. Suppose one of you had a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave his 99 in the open country and go after the one lost sheep until he finds it? 
And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls all of his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found the lost sheep. I tell you that in in this sense there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Very familiar, right? The lost sheep. A couple of things I love about this parable. The first is I love this picture of the audience. So Jesus is sitting and he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. They're all gathering around him to hear him. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are gathered over here in the corner, and they're just muttering amongst themselves. I can't believe he gathers and eats with sinners and tax collectors. He welcomes them. You've got to understand this audience is, is a pretty radical thing. The tax collectors and, and teachers of the law wouldn't have anything to do with uh, broken people, sinful people, tax collectors and sinners. The Pharisees weren't going to have anything to do with this group of people because they not only clashed from a, uh, a class standpoint, they clashed from a theological standpoint. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and these Essenes and these classes of religious sect believed they were not only better, but they believed that they were more righteous. And therefore, any interaction with the tax collectors and when they put sinners in quotes, they're talking about real sinners prostitutes, broken people, thieves. They're not going to have anything to do, they're not, going to not, they're not only not going to have anything to do with them, they're not going to let their lives touch because there was also a firm belief that they got close to them that somehow they would become unclean. And so they'd gather in this corner and they would mutter, I can't believe this Jesus, this teacher, this rabbi, if you will, would welcome these people into this place. And not only that, he would teach with them and all through scripture we see Jesus eating with them. It's a fascinating picture, right? Because we know how Jesus loves people. And we love, as the church, the story of the redeemed person. We love that idea. We love the idea of the recovering drug addict. We love the idea of the person who was broken, the person who was uh, a this or that. We love the idea of a marriage restored. We love the idea of fixed people. In fact, we love for fixed people to get up here and tell their story about how they once were broken, how I once was blind, but now I see and God is so great. But we don't know what to do with the really active, true, full-blown sinful person right now. We don't know what to do with that. Well, the audience is this mix of people, this mix of sinful people and righteous people, if you will. And they weren't working well together, but the sinful people didn't care. They were just sitting at Jesus' feet. And he wasn't just teaching them, saying, fix your life, do this, do that. He was just welcoming them. It's an incredible picture about the love of Christ and how we're called as the church to love people, which we're not really going to get into today. But I want you to understand the imagery that's here, which is all the people that thought they had life together standing over here questioning Jesus and why he would even bother with this group of people, this group of people with broken identities and shattered understandings of who they were, outcast from society and full of fear. And they're wondering why Jesus would have anything to do with them. So Jesus tells him this parable, right? Very famous parable. He says, listen, he speaks to the Pharisees because he knows they're over there muttering in the corner. And he says, suppose you had a group of sheep. You had a hundred of them. One of those sheep wanders off, right? What would you do? Would you not leave the 99 behind and go after the one until you find it? So he's saying, how valuable are these sheep? And from an agrarian society, which you and I are not, not a part of, um, most of us would think, well, you know, you just Amazon another sheep. It shows up at your house. It's amazing. It's great. You lost one. How many sheep do you lose in a normal day, right? No, that's not the way that typically worked. 
When you lost a sheep, you went after it. As a shepherd, your entire life was tied to the idea of protecting this flock. Most of the time, they were not yours. You were protecting them for someone who owned them, and it was your life or the sheep's life. It's why David and these other shepherds would fend off bears and wolves with their very life to protect their sheep because they were highly valued and you couldn't get one, and they cared for them and they sung to them and they led them out and they brought them back and they knew them by name and the sheep knew their voice. And there was this deep love relationship that said when one sheep left, because sheep were not smart, they're dumb, and they wander. And the shepherd would pursue that sheep until he finds it. He'd look at the 9-9 and say, you know what, you're all right. I'm going after, as Brandon would say, Carl, who gets a bad rap in every one of Brandon's sermons. We're going to meet him one day, it's going to be a bad day. But Carl the sheep wanders. And so the shepherd goes after the one sheep, and he says, how many of you would not leave the other sheep, go after it until you find it, and when you find it, you joyfully put it on your shoulders, and you return home, and you call your neighbors, and you say, rejoice with me. Now, for us, that's saying, it seems a little bit extreme, but you've got to understand what these folks are wandering and going through in order to rescue the sheep. And there's a few statements in there that are incredibly powerful about the love of God. And the first idea is this, is that God's love is sort of It's this pursuing love. So for a lot of our lives, we think that we have to earn God's love or earn the love of people or earn this idea of love. I've got to perform for it. I've got to do it right. I've got to show people that I'm worthy. We treat God the same way. If I do this, God will do that. God, see how hard I'm trying. Our prayers are filled with that. Lord, I'm trying really hard. I'm doing the best I can. Well, your best will never be good enough, but God's love is pursuing. It actually pursues you. That when you wander, when you falter, when you fail, when you trip, when you stumble, when you go over the rocks and the mountains and over the hills, even after God has told you a thousand times how much he doesn't want you to go or do that or exercise that behavior, whatever it is, God's love is so pursuing that he goes after you. He doesn't stand there and wait for you to come back. All right, I'll be here when you get back. That's a lot of the imagery that we have of God. That God is consistent and he is still. And we can wander and whenever we kind of get rid of whatever it is that we're doing, we can always return to him. It's a broken picture. God's love is actually pursuing. When you walk, when you wander, when you drift, God goes after you. He never lets you escape. He pursues you because he loves you and he created you and he knows you. And you are one of the most valuable parts of this economy. The economy of God's kind of picture of redemption. And so he pursues you. His love is pursuing. But it's also relentless. It says it will pursue that sheep until he finds it. Not until it gets dark or dangerous or difficult, or not until he just sort of runs out of energy or time. But he pursues the sheep until he finds it. Our love has infinite, or finite, if you will, finite ends. I can only do so much. I can only give so much. And then eventually, I just got to quit trying. God's love knows no boundaries like that. It knows no corners. It knows no stopping places. It is relentless and it pursues until it finds you, meaning no matter what you've done, no no matter how awful, how terrible, how just difficult, how destructive, how personally destructive, how destructive culturally, whatever it is, whatever sin, whatever thing, whatever deal you've done is not too big to be relentlessly pursued by God. He doesn't give up. No matter how many years it's been, how, many, how long it's been, none of those things matter. God's love is pursuing and it is relentless. 
It's the kind of love of a shepherd that goes after a sheep. But look what happens when he finds the sheep, right? So his love is pursuing it to relentless. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and returns home. So what would you expect? I don't know if you've ever had an animal like you cared about that did something terrible. You just want to yell at it. Of course, it doesn't do any good, but you want to. Think about what this love of God is leading you. He called you. He loves you. created you. You continue to make choices that are destructive, selfish decisions, sinful decisions. You continue to wander. You continue to say, oh, God, I hear you, but I do this. Oh, God, I hear you do this. But God is relentlessly pursuing you. And when he finally finds you, when he rescues you, he doesn't berate you. How could you do that? Why would you do that? How many times did I have to tell you, don't do that? None of that. None of that berating. It says that he joyfully puts you on his shoulders and returns home. In other words, God's love is this joyfully redemptive thing that doesn't end in the explanation of why you are terrible. With a lecture at the end that shows you just how you went wrong. The joyfully redemptive love of God is first and foremost that it's redemptive. It says, I have pursued you, I relentlessly pursued you. When I find you, I am overwhelmed with love, not because you ever earned it or found it or even deserve it. In fact, you do not, but I love to give it. And he joyfully puts that sheep on his shoulders, and he returns home. And when he gets home to the flock, he doesn't put that sheep up on a, on a, like a box and say, hey, look at what this worthless sheep did. If any of you wander, you're going to get the same treatment. He berates it and ridicules it and says, this is what a flawed sheep looks like. Made us all risk our lives. No, he joyfully carries this 110 to 115 pound dumb animal back to the flock. And when he gets there, he calls his neighbors and his friends and he celebrates. I mean, think about that for a moment. Your dog runs away, you spend all afternoon, you find it, you're happy. Do you call your neighbors and your mom to drive in from Tulsa and your you know, college roommate to come in from Toledo? Because you found your dog. Because our love has got these finite ends to it. And our love has no understanding of the depth and breadth of what God will go to to rescue you. Because we're not just talking about finding something that's lost. We're talking about redemption of the soul. And it says there is more celebration over one sinner who repents because of the economy of heaven, which means your life is marked by this incredible truth that you are valued and you are worth something. And you are so worth something that God will call a celebration when he rescues and saves you and you can do none of it on your own. This is what perfect love looks like. It's pursuing, it's relentless. It's joyfully celebrative. And you didn't do anything to earn it or deserve it, which means that thing that you are chasing from people that lie, that chasing of imperfect love will never get you here. But imperfect love does what you, imperfect love does what you cannot, which is it pursues you relentlessly and it's celebrated when it finds you. This is why we talk about the love of the Savior as a celebration because guess what? You did nothing to deserve it and you never will. And yet God pursues you and pursues you and pursues you. But most of us, even after hearing all of that and knowing all those things to be true, will still be frozen in our tracks and will still pursue the lie. And you want to know why? Because of fear. Most of us are seized by fear. We're afraid of being rejected. We're afraid of what people are going to say. 
We're afraid of being totally vulnerable. We're afraid of a lot of things. But that fear will actually drive us into the hands of imperfect love to keep trying to pursue it because we need an economy in our own lives that said, I did something to get that. Because at least at that point I can control it. And so most of us will not surrender to this incredible love of God out of fear. And as crazy as that sounds, it's just true. We're afraid of a lot of things and we let fear seize our heart and our soul and it guides our thoughts and it leads us down places that we know we probably shouldn't go. Even when we think that way, it still leads us there. But there's something incredible about this, imperfect, or this perfect love, right? And 1 John chapter 4 talks about it. It says that there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. If you think about that for just a moment, that God's incredible perfect love should drive out every fear that we have. The fear of being rejected, the fear of people not valuing us, the fear of falling empty, the fear of not finding my identity, right, wrapped up in the words and the approval and the praise of people. That fear, that perfect love drives it out because it no longer matters. All that matters is that I was broken and shattered and that the God of the universe called me valuable enough to hunt me down, to rescue me, redeem me, and celebrates me. And I have a new identity in him and not because of someone else. Not because of what my mom said or my dad didn't say or not because of what my family says or what my wife or my husband may say or that boyfriend or whatever. Not because of any of those things. My value is not attached to that at all. But perfect love has driven that out of me. I no longer need that from people to define who I am because perfect love will not heal your, heal your, shattered, heal your shattered identity. Imperfect love won't. Perfect love does. The only thing that will heal that, bro- heal that brokenness in you is surrendering to the perfect love of Christ. The love of Christ that broke in through the cries of an infant, walked flawlessly and sinlessly on this earth, voluntarily died on a Roman instrument of murder and death, was raised from the dead, that when we put our faith and our hope and our trust in this relentless pursuing love of God, he redefines us, renames us, remarks us, and calls us a new creation and breathes new life into us, and I no longer am defined by my pursuit of finding love and acceptance from other things. But Jesus, you are enough for me. Perfect love leads us to that place where identity is wrapped up in him alone. So the question as we land this thing this morning is simply this. The celebrative love of Christ, is it enough for you? What is it that you're truly celebrating at Christmas, right? Are we celebrating family and friends? Well, yes. But really what we're celebrating is the fact that my identity and who I am has been bought with a price at this pursuing, relentless, celebratory love of Christ has given me reason to draw breath and therefore I can love family well because I'm not dependent on how they love me because I know who I am in Christ and I can live as a reflection of that to those people around me and I can stand on solid ground that is not built on fear but is built on truth which is I am valued, I am named, I am worthy of being pursued and I am rescued by the King. So whatever identity wants to tell you, you, or whatever kind of identity you want to buy into, I'm my work, I'm my husband's this, I'm my wife's this, I'm whatever, I'm whatever, I'm whatever, let it be marked by the singular truth that you are loved and beloved by God. This incredible, perfect love of Christ that drives out fear has given you 
the true picture of what it means to celebrate. That I once was lost, but now I'm found. That I was blind, but now I see. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather just a little bit this morning and open your word to some very familiar parables and texts and truths that as we think about Advent and we celebrate Jesus as the light and celebrate Jesus as his love is expressed as this perfect picture of relentlessly pursuing celebrative love that is perfect, that drives out fear, that creates my identity, that I'm not subject to the washing waves of culture and people, that I don't have to perform for them, that I don't find who I am based on what they say, but that you give me my identity and I'm found in you and you alone. This is what we celebrate during Advent and honestly during every day of our lives as followers of Christ. We celebrate the love, the perfect love of the Savior. Let's take a moment, let's close our time in worship, let's stand together and celebrate this truth, this incredible love of Christ together.